So this week, we're in the second week of a four-part sermon series that we're calling The Fourfold Path of the Forgiveness. And it's based on a book by Archbishop Desmond Tutu and his daughter Ufo. And so the book is called The Book of Forgiving. And in it, they outline four steps on the path of forgiveness. And those include telling your story. The second is naming the hurt. The third is granting the forgiveness. And then the fourth is renewing or releasing the relationship. So Ken and I have invited you guys to try out this process over the next four weeks, knowing that for some wrongs, four weeks just isn't enough time to be able to go through the process. You know, if you've been abused or really badly betrayed in your life, like we recognize that forgiveness can be a long process. It can sometimes take years, and it might be something that you lean into for a season and then have to come back to later. Well, last week, uh, Ken talked about the first step in the process, telling the story, and so this week we're going to talk about naming the hurt. And there's an important difference between those two things, between telling the story and naming the hurt. And I thought I would start just with an example here. So a few years back, I was um, working and studying abroad overseas when a few friends of mine and I were robbed. And it was a few days, I think it was just two days before Christmas, 2007. And we were in a part of the world that's a little bit less safe, and we were staying in this guest house that was kind of like an inn. And so it was a Sunday morning, and we woke up and had breakfast, and we went and worshipped with a church that was local in the area. And so after we had done that and we had lunch, we returned to our guest house, and when we walked upstairs and went to find our rooms, we found that they had just been ransacked, and anything that we had of value was gone. So I was a little bit more experienced of a traveler than some of my friends were, so I actually hadn't brought any electronics or my phone. Like I left those back in a safe in a big city. And I always carried my passport on me. But my friends were younger and they hadn't traveled quite as much. And I mean, they lost a lot of stuff. They lost some of those expensive cameras with like the big lenses, laptops, phones, iPads, passports, a large amount of money. And so the room I shared with my Swedish friend, her name's Angelica, it was in really bad shape. And I just still remember the shock of walking and being like, okay, our door is busted open. And like trying to make sense and looking in and just seeing, oh my gosh, it was a mess. Everything was thrown around, and when I say everything, I mean like they had gone through our boxes of tampons and opened them and flung them all out and dumped our makeup and taken our pills and like literally strewn them around the room so that everything was just a mess. Our beds were torn apart. And so we went and we found the man who ran the guest house to report what had happened because we were almost positive we knew who it was who had robbed us. So in this guest house, there were like several rooms that shared a common area, like where there was a table and uh, like a small TV where we were all watching soccer, I think, at the time. And it turns out that these other guests, they had taken off that morning and they had actually checked in under false names. So the innkeeper calls the police and it took them hours to arrive. And once they did arrive, they required a bribe in order to file the complaint. So I think my German friend um, either gave them the money or yelled at them so much that they they said, okay, we'll take it a little further. But then they wanted money to log each and every item that had been stolen. And I don't remember the amount, but I wanted to say it was like $60 an item. So pay us $60 and we'll write down that you had a camera, $60, a passport, whatever. So we were like, okay, just forget it. These guys are long gone. There's going to be no justice here. And so that's the story. Right, that's the story in a nutshell, and you can surmise I you know, had to forgive those thieves for what they did. But it doesn't really name the hurt. Right? Telling the story is one thing, but it's not naming the hurt. 
So the story is like the who, what, when, where, how. It's the factual details. But naming the herd in large part is naming the emotional impact. So yeah, I was robbed of a couple of small items. The room was ransacked. I can tell you what was stolen, what the robbers looked like. But the emotional impact was that I didn't feel safe anymore. And I didn't feel safe in that building. And I remember Angelica and I trying to fall asleep, but neither of us could fall asleep because we didn't feel safe to fall asleep. And we didn't feel safe taking a shower. And then I didn't feel safe just in the town we were working in because it was clear that the local police force was impotent and corrupt and just generally unhelpful. And I was robbed of my ability to trust other people around me. Right? I was suspicious when people were you know, approaching me too closely or I felt like they were following me. So it's like, yeah, the money and the clothing being stolen is a hurt, right? That's unjust. But being robbed of the sense of safety and the ability to trust people was like the deeper hurt. So we have an interesting picture, I think, of the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians, who's also in this same stage of the forgiveness cycle here in the New Testament. And so to get a little bit of context for, for how we can look at the Apostle Paul here, I'm going to do something a little bit different for me, a little unorthodox, and I'm going to suggest that we think about Paul in a more contemporary context to try and get a feel for what's going on, for those of you who may not be as familiar with the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. So all of us here know, we know that the tech industry really started, the internet tech industry, about 20, 25 years ago. Right? Companies like Amazon, eBay, mid-90s. And so I was thinking about it, I was like, you know, you could really think about Paul as one of those early tech gurus. You know, he's been in the business a while, he's seen some of the market ups and downs, he's had to reimagine sort of the, the e-business model to try and figure out how to make money. And so this, this techie Paul, who's been around a while in this business, he starts to become a mentor to some of the younger entrepreneurs who are in Silicon Valley. So it'd be like if Paul was invited to a new company, we'll call it Corinth, and he's really excited about this company. He's excited about what they're doing. They really adore him. They're trying to get him to stay. They're just like, man, we just think you're the greatest. But Paul's like, okay, you know what? I feel like I've done what I can do here, and I've got some other people to mentor. So he goes off. And he's at another company, we'll call it Ephesus. And so he's at Ephesus when he gets word that things aren't going so well back at the other company in Corinth. He hears that they're having a hard time and that their managers aren't leading well. So he shoots them a lengthy email, really lengthy email. And he says, okay, guys, I, I'm hearing all of these stories about jealousy and about rivalries between your managers. I hear some of you guys are saying, you know, I follow Paul's management style. And some of you are saying, well, I follow Apollos' management style. But here's the thing. Apollos and I are friends, and neither one of us are advocating for that, right? We want the same thing. We're on the same team. And then I'm hearing that people within your company are suing each other. And that people are boasting about sleeping with other people's spouses within the company. One guy's even sleeping with his stepmother, which is illegal. Right? In the Roman world, the penalty of that would have been exiled to an island. So he's like, get your act together. Look, I love you guys. I love your community. I love your company. So for goodness sake, make some changes so you guys can survive and thrive. And so this email gets to Corinth and they, you know, everybody forwards it. It's circulating. And some people realize how ridiculous they look once Paul holds this mirror up to them. But of course, others are really angry with him and they start to question his authority to mentor them at all. They're just like, dude, who does he think he is? Why does he think that he's better than us? So that email that Paul sent is a little like the first letter to the Corinthians. All right, so especially in the early part of the letter, Paul is calling people out for the destructive behavior, 
All the things that I listed were actually things that Paul is calling out. And so the Corinthians responded to him in a very mixed way, some positive, some negative. And it seems that they sent a letter back to him. But we don't have that letter. We're not sure what it says. But judging from Paul's second letter in response, it must have been pretty painful for him to read. Right? So lots of people are mad at him. They don't think he's qualified. They accuse him of not being a true follower of Jesus. And so Paul writes the second letter where he names the hurt. So 2 Corinthians, I think, is one of the most fascinating books to read through. I say, if you have time this week, it's only a few chapters long. Um, it's fascinating because it's really different. Paul's emotions are just all over the place. And it seems like the thing um, that's really been hurtful to him are the accusations that he's not a true follower of Jesus, right? that he hasn't been willing to sacrifice enough for the faith. And so he's responding in ways where he's sad, he's defensive, he's angry, he's passionate. And we see this um, in chapter 11. He writes this list of everything that he's gone through and that he feels like God has asked him to do. And he's kind of self-conscious about it. But this doesn't get read very much, I don't think, in sermons. And I, I kind of love this bit of the Bible. So I'm going to read through 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 21 to 31. Because this just shows Paul for all he is. He goes, okay, whatever anyone dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. If they boast that they're Hebrews, well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Look, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. One time I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. This could be a rap song. In danger from false believers. I'm just not skilled. <laughs> I have labored and toiled, and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger. I've known thirst. I've gone without food. I mean, like, right? I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. Who's weak that I don't feel weak? Who's led into sin that I don't inwardly burn? If I must boast, I boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of my Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows I'm not lying. I, have to admit, I used to read this, and I kind of understood the people in Corinthians. It was a little like, God, this guy seems a little braggy, maybe a little insecure, he needs to prove himself, until I was accused of not being a sincere follower of Jesus myself. And then I actually used this passage as part of the model for my coming out sermon, actually. It was like suddenly I kind of understood Paul and his raw, emotional, defensive response because if you've devoted your life to something that you believe in your inmost gut to be true, and you feel like you've sacrificed in real ways to live it out, it like really strikes a nerve when people dismiss your sincerity. And so this is Paul. He's hurting in the core of his being, and he's just letting himself feel and name all of these different emotions. And sometimes they're even conflicting emotions in the same thought flow. You know, we see in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it though I do regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy. Not because you're sorry, but because your, sorry, your sorrow led you to repentance. 
And he's like, I'm happy, but it's clear from his whole letter he is not happy. He's really sad and really hurt, right? But in the midst of all of this jumble that he's getting out, he's also able to name the hurt that's behind the issue. He says, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. We've opened wide our hearts to you. I think the we here is Paul and Titus who was traveling with him. He said, we're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. And as a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. And then further down in 2 Corinthians 7, make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. I don't say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged. In all of our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Right? So if you can get to the heart of what emotional Paul is saying here, he's saying, my grievance is that you've accused me of wrongdoing, of corrupting you, of exploiting you, and you've closed your heart to me. And that's what hurts. You've closed your heart to me, and I feel this disconnection between us. And I feel like I've done nothing wrong. And I love you deeply, and I would do everything for you. That's the hurt. And what he needs from them is for them to say they're sorry for hurting him and for falsely accusing him. And he wants to be welcomed back into Corinth so that he can come and fellowship with them and not feel like there's that disconnection. And he's incredibly vulnerable throughout the letter, right? He's trusting that he has enough respect in Corinth, enough of a relationship with the leaders who are still there that they're going to respond to this vulnerability kindly. And so Paul allows himself to, I say, feel all the feels, you know, and to communicate those emotions that he has. So when we name the hurt in the forgiveness process, all emotions and all the responses are valid, right? No feeling is like wrong or invalid in this state of the process, right? And I think this is important, so I'm going to say it again. When we allow ourselves to name our hurts, we step back and we refrain from judging what our bodies are saying to us, and no feeling is invalid or wrong. And we humans have a wide range of feelings when hurts have been done when wrongs have been done, right? We have anger, resentment, sadness, defensiveness, a desire for justice, sometimes even a desire for revenge. You know, obviously revenge is not like the end goal if you're trying to forgive someone. But at this stage, like to deny some of these feelings can do more harm than good. I mean, that's just what, like listening to Carol this morning was just so beautiful. Because at this point, like she felt angry at God. Sometimes we feel angry at ourselves, but to just say, well, I shouldn't feel angry, so I'm going to pretend like I don't, or stuff that down, that usually has some consequences for us. And so it's important to just give yourself permission to feel all those feelings and it be okay. You know, I was thinking, um, like that desire for revenge, I think, is a very natural feeling. And to try and act like sometimes, if somebody's really badly hurt you, like you don't have that, it will still come out. And so I wanted to give an example. You know, like maybe somebody cheated on you. Like maybe you're in a relationship, somebody cheated on you, and really what you want to have happen is you want for some, their next relationship to go very badly. Like you're just kind of hoping that they're going to fail miserably. And I think if you can start by admitting that to yourself, that you have that feeling about that, that, and then admit it to somebody you trust, you can start to like pinpoint why it is you're feeling that angry, right? So start with kind of that raw emotion and get down further to find out what is it that has hurt so badly in me that that's what I'm really hoping for or wanting. And to know that that's a natural feeling. But if we can't forgive that hurt, 
then something about that person who harmed us will always haunt us. Does that make sense? Like if you've been cheated on and you're really hoping that something bad is going to happen to that person, you might be like stalking them on Facebook or trying to figure out like, oh, like taking little joys when, when things go badly in their lives. And then it starts to occupy your thoughts in a way that continues to rob you of your happiness. So that person's already hurt you once and then they're continuing to hurt you and to rob you of like feeling the fullness of happiness in other parts of your life. Does that make sense? So if we deny the effect that the, a harm has on us, it can fester, right? And sometimes it comes out in our dreams or in our nightmares. Sometimes it comes out passive-aggressively. Sometimes it comes out in like emotional outbursts where like the emotion involved outweighs like what the circumstance out actually warrants. And so let me give you an example. Like let's say your kid forgets to take out the garbage and you just lose it on them. Like you just wail. And you know that it's completely inappropriate, your response to them not taking out the garbage. But you know underneath that it's not really about them taking out the garbage that one time, right? It's about all of the times that they haven't done it and actually you're feeling like they've been checked out maybe from the family. But those are things that you haven't voiced and so it all builds up and comes out in a giant burst of emotion. I was thinking like some of you guys are in middle school here. Maybe you're a middle schooler and one of your friends tells you that they can't hang out next weekend and you start to get a little snippy with them and you find yourself crying later and you realize it's not really about them not being able to hang out next week and that's fair enough but maybe it's a pattern where you felt hurt and like they're making better friends with other people and not hanging out with you as much right you haven't been able to name that hurt along the way and so it sort of builds up and festers so when we don't name our hurts they come out without us realizing it right they'll eventually manifest Desmond Tutu wrote in the book he said marriages crumble under the weight of unspoken resentments and unacknowledged hurts. When we ignore the pain, it just grows bigger and bigger, and then like an abscess that's never drained, it will eventually rupture. And so to tend to our closest relationships with partners and children and roommates and friends and business partners, we have to have a certain level of trust with one another so that we can give gentle voice to those things that cause us pain. Right? It's, it's like those old I feel statements that I think they taught me in eighth grade health class. You know, like, when you do this, it makes me feel like this. And just doing that as sort of general upkeep in the relationship as sort of just maintenance. And it's really this ability to be vulnerable that's key to the process of healing and wholeness. And that said, it's not always safe to be vulnerable with the person who's done you harm. Right? Maybe you've been vulnerable with them before and they haven't responded in, in, like, a caring way. I remember I had somebody I was doing some... Um, what do you call that, mediation with. And so I listed out the harms and the person just looked at me and said, well, that's a lot. You know, so that, that's not a safe person to try and be vulnerable with. Maybe somebody has abused you. Maybe they're the kind of person who um, can't hold your confidence and they'll go around and tell other people your feelings. Like there are reasons to not share with the person who hurt you directly. But hopefully if the person is somebody who's close in your life, you're able to do that to tend the relationship. But then of course that begs the question, if you can't name the hurt, the hurt with the person who hurt you, either because they're unsafe or the deceased, whatnot, with whom should you share your short story and your hurt? And this is where I think Brene Brown has been particularly helpful for me. She said something that I find super helpful. She said, we should really only share our vulnerabilities with the people in our lives who have earned the right to hear them, with the people who are safe and with whom we know we won't, they won't judge our weaknesses or use them against us. 
because vulnerability is based on mutuality. Right? It's based on mutuality and it requires trust between two people. I think that's why it feels weird to us when somebody you don't know very well comes and you know they like totally overshare and they tell you all of their stuff and it just feels like instinctively you have this little ah because you just haven't had enough time in the relationship to build that mutual trust. And it's just really not healthy to be vulnerable with everyone that we meet. But it is healthy to be vulnerable with someone trustworthy who can empathize. And if you don't feel like you have someone like that in your life, like a therapist or even a faith leader are good places to start. They're usually good neutral people with whom you can kind of talk or confess and get some empathy. So in the book Desmond and Mfotutu, they talk about how healing is all about connection with others. And that should sound familiar, right? At Blue Ocean, we talk about our faith is all about connection. I said, healing is all about connection with others. Because when we share vulnerably with one person or with several people, and we can receive empathy from them, we can receive non-judging listening, in that we can experience our shared humanity. He says that's the path toward healing, that we find comfort in realizing that we're not the only ones who hurt, and we're not the only ones who feel vulnerable. I think he wrote very beautifully, um, Desmond Tutu said this, he said, the only way to stop the pain is to accept it. And the only way to accept it is to name it. And by name it, naming it, to feel it fully. To feel it fully. I mean, that's what Paul's doing in 2 Corinthians. He's feeling it fully. And in doing this, he says, you discover that your pain is part of the great eternal tapestry of human loss and heartbreak. And you realize that you're not alone in your suffering and that others have experienced and survived what you've experienced and that you too can survive and that you can know joy and happiness again. And when you embrace your feelings, you embrace yourself, and then you allow others to embrace you too. So last week, Ken introduced a practical exercise that's also in the book, looking for my stone. What you do is you select a stone. Some of you did that last week. We have some more up here on the altar if you'd like to get one. And what you do is you take this stone and you carry it around with you during the, the duration of the sermon series. And the stone represents someone you'd like to forgive, or maybe someone you'd like to start the process of forgiveness with. And then you carry it around with you every day. I know Ken's been faithfully carrying his in his pocket. I put mine on the coffee table because I don't like to have the rock in my pocket all the time. But something like put it someplace where it reminds you um, every day that this is something that you're trying to engage with. And so at the end of the series, what we're going to do is we're going to have a chance for you to come up and just like lay the stones on the altar. And that will just represent an act of either being able to let go of releasing that person. Um, maybe it's just like the hope of being able to do that. And then there's no shame in just keeping your stone and saying, you know what, this may take me a little bit longer, but I'm going to hold on to this to remind me that this is something that I'm in the process of doing. And so this week... Part of the practice of the stone that Desmond Tutu recommends is he says, you know, just take the stone in prayer and hold it. And as you hold it, you name the hurts. Try and get to them. And he says, as you name them, squeeze the stone and then just release it. And so it kind of represents like sort of the hold and the angst and the pain that that hurt has on you and then releasing it. And what this does is it just helps us visualize and ritualize that in prayer as we ask for God to come with us in that process. All right, so we're going to end here with a couple of minutes of silence. 
So usually we take a couple of minutes. It doesn't have to be completely silent. You know, babies and people make noise. But what we're going to do during this time, if you would like to and are willing to, is maybe just open your hands and think of a time this week where somebody has hurt you. Or if that isn't coming to mind right away, like maybe you've just got a lot of anxiety because school's starting this week or whatever. Like just picture something you're anxious about or a hurt that's going on. And we're just going to ask Jesus to come and we can experience his empathy and his love and his peace in the midst of that anxiety. And remember that the Holy Spirit, the name for the Holy Spirit means the advocate. And so if there's a situation where you feel like you just need God to advocate for you in some situation in your life, that you can just make this space to ask him for that and then keep our ears open. Like if there's something that you're seeing or hearing, be open that maybe that is something or some way that God is trying to communicate with you. So I'll keep my eye on the time and let's just ask the Holy Spirit to come here, Lord, where we just lay out our anxieties and our hurts before you and trust that you are here with us, breathing on us. Jesus, we invite you to speak some words of comfort to us in our lives. Jesus, we thank you that you love us so much that no matter what it is we're feeling, even if we're angry at you, if we're just hurting and sort of um, having all kinds of emotions, Lord, that you accept us just as we are without sort of judging this human frailty that we have. You understand and know and carried with us what it means to be a human. And so, God, we just offer any of these feelings, any of these emotions to you and ask that you can take them and that you can help bring healing and hope in every area of our lives, God, that we can live to the fullest and experience your joy and your life through every part of our lives.